0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Conduct Detrimental Podcast. I'm your co-host Dan Worley. I'm joined by a uh, European currently, Dan Wallach. Dan, how's London?
1: Oh man, much better than uh, being in Miami. Wow, I, I dodged. A, I definitely dodged the bullet, uh, and it's been it's been enjoyable. I'm mean, going to be in Europe for the next week. Hopefully, South Florida is uh, up and running uh, a week from Saturday, so I'm satisfied. Mind. And uh, one one U.S. item that's not out of sight and out of mind is our subject for today, Dan. I mean, this is the biggest story of the year, at least for us. And today at high noon or 5 p.m., we're going to find out how the judge will rule in the Ezekiel Elliott uh, case, if he rules at all.
0: Yeah, and um, I think it's so taken it away. I think today is really the turning point of this case. We're going to really see. Mm-hmm. how it's gonna go we're gonna this is the first crucial day i think um you know the hearing the other day was obviously important but um you, whichever way this goes has a huge bearing on the on the likelihood of which party wins um i think that the nfl pa has a lot more to lose today if they don't win today it's um it's gonna be a real uphill battle for them where i think the nfl if they lose today there's still a few more bites at the apple especially you know kind of like what we saw in in Gate, they win at the uh, excuse me. The NFL loses at the district court level. Then an appeal. It's kind of like a fresh slate with a, a panel of judges. Um, but uh, let's get let's get right into the judge's decision today. And I, I think we'll just give the people what they want. You know, what's your prediction, Dan? Well,
1: I know I've been kind of shy on, on Twitter about how I think the judge will rule. First of all, he is not going to put this case to New York, and and, and if he does, uh, we're, we're scratching this balance. You're not even going to put it out on the air. Uh, After having held a a a two-and-a-half-hour hearing on Tuesday, the judge judge, spent Labor Day weekend reviewing the briefs, only to have the NFL take this over to New York and try to file a parallel lawsuit. There's just no way possible that this – and they didn't even mention it to the judge during the Tuesday hearing. This judge is keeping the case, and he's going to rule, and he's going to grant a temporary restraining order or a preliminary injunction in favor of Ezekiel Elliott. For the reasons I've outlined at nauseam, that largely centering on the fundamental fairness ground, uh, which is uh, you know, which which addresses the uh, exclusion of the testimony from uh, the accuser Tiffany Thompson, as well as the notes of the interviews that the NFL conducted with her, that goes to the crux of, of of the case and the ability to confront and cross examine your accuser. This is not like the gate where we're talking about competitive age in a football game. This is almost like a quasi-criminal proceeding. And not having the accuser in that arbitration is tantamount to a deprivation of fundamental fairness.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, we've seen the NFL's arguments in, in against this point, and And they say, and I'm going to lump Harold Henderson in with the NFL at this point. Um, but they, you know, basically come out and say, well, listen, we can rely rely on these other court decisions. I have unwielding power. But um, at a certain point, there's there's certain things along the way, and I think you outlined a few of them. And to me, the most important point was not as much not having the accuser in the arbitration hearing. Uh, you you can, you can see why there may be an excuse for that. Apparently, the NFL's never done that. But why deprive them of the interview notes? I, did, I just... That decision just made absolutely no sense to me um, uh, on any level, and I think that really strikes a chord on on being uh, an actual fundamentally unfair process. And from what we've heard coming out of some of the folks who were in the courtroom the other day, it sounded to me like the judge in this case had a real problem with some of these issues. What's your read on that, Dan? I mean, it's almost
1: like Judge Richard Berman from the Southern District of New York uh, you know, did some mind meld with, with Judge uh, Amos Mazat because some of the, some of the questioning uh, of, of, of the NFL's lawyers on the issue of fundamental uh, fairness echoed the exa- almost the exact line of questioning that uh, Judge Berman uh, used in the Southern District case uh, two years ago in the Flakegate. I, I, I think the judge has already tipped his hand. We don't have the transcript, uh, but several people in attendance Uh, You know, just took, uh, you know, just extensive notes. And there seems to be a general consensus that the judge was much difficult, much more difficult on the league's attorneys and focused on the fundamental fairness issue, as I have written about. And as you've alluded to, I think not having the notes uh, is certainly the the, I I, I think it's the turning point. I mean, you can't compel Miss Thompson to come into another jurisdiction. But the, the NFL didn't even ask. And she cooperated with the NFL throughout the investigative process. Uh, she probably traveled to New York at the at, at, at league's expense. The league never even bothered to ask her to participate in this proceeding because they didn't want her there. But not having her present, the next best thing with these interview notes and depriving Elliot of these interview notes, I think, ended up uh, will end up sealing the deal and uh, you know, results in a temporary restraining order or injunction being granted in favor of Elliott, which is not the end of the case. Obviously, we still have, you know, the full merits of the district court case, but you know, as you and I both know as litigators, um, the decision on a motion for a TRO or a motion for PI generally presages the ultimate result at the district court level. Cause if the judge think it's likely that one party is going to succeed uh, barring any new evidence, uh, that result will hold, uh, in the final judgment. And there won't be any new evidence here. The real question, and there are two questions, is what would the Fifth Circuit do? Will the Fifth Circuit treat, uh, this issue any differently than the Second Circuit did in deflate B? And more importantly, from a strategy perspective, is it in the judge's best interest to maybe issue a TRO, but not a preliminary injunction? And then uh, cycle up or expedite the final hearing on the merits and rule within the next two, three weeks because the PRO is not appealable to the Fifth Circuit. So the judge might be able to exercise some dominion and control over this lawsuit because once he issues a PI, that's, it's just going to go right away to the Fifth Circuit and, uh, and he, he could stand a chance of getting reversed, although I don't think he, he will be in this case.
0: Yeah. I, I just want to highlight a couple of points that you – went over, uh, pretty quickly. And and one of them is literally the, what goes into the decision making for a judge when issuing a TRO or PI. And that's like you said, the likelihood of success on the merit. So essentially the judge is saying, I think if he grants it, he's saying, I think that Ezekiel Elliott is eventually going to win this case. And so that's why this is such a huge ruling today. Right. Um, we're in a position where the judge is basically going to come out and say, unless something dramatic happens later on, um, that this party is going to win or that party is going to win. And I think, um, to me, and I haven't seen the transcript as well, but the irreparable harm issue, which is the other major point where uh, Elliot was irreparably harmed, but that has sort of fallen off. I think that's sort of a given at this point that um, – he has irreparably harmed. So now we're really focusing on this likelihood of success on the merits issue, and so whether it goes the NFL ways or the PA's way is going to be huge.
1: Yeah, and and I think the standard in at least in the fifth is a substantial likelihood of success on the merits, uh, almost like a blowout. You know, it's uh, you, you know if you're if you're substantially likely to succeed at this stage of the proceedings what would have to happen between now and the end of the case for the judge to change his mind. So with this decision, the judge is, uh, essentially, uh you know, teeing up the final judgment, which could come, you know, barring an appeal within a few weeks or certainly, uh, within the ne- next two to three months, depending upon his, uh, you know, docket congestion, well, you'd be a much better law professor than I would. You explain these concepts <laughs> to the non-lawyers in our, in our audience. I just kind of just go Right through it and speak in the legal jargon, and sometimes I have to catch myself uh because I think maybe uh, it might go over the head of those without it after. so thanks no for, no, uh, no. I, uh, picking up the slack me on that
0: you're you're um, you're doing a great job analyzing it I think um all of these things um, start snowballing, and there's so many different paths that this case could take less yeah. paths than we, it's funny we should probably tell everyone that we recorded a podcast a couple of days ago. We had a technical issue and the audio didn't pick up. And we, we – um, that podcast and we had our, our friend Ian Gunn join us. We evaluated every possible scenario that could happen. And this was before the, the TRO hearing on uh, – I believe that was we Wednesday. We didn't
1: evaluate this, but we didn't, we didn't evaluate the scenario of the recording. Not in case yeah, going that's the part. one we missed, unfortunately. Yeah, that was unfortunately. the scenario we <laughs> <were> completely <laughs> overlooked.
0: And, uh, <laughs> and so, you know, going down all these these rabbit holes of different different ways things could go based on one decision or the other, you start to, start to realize that there's just so much out there. And so um, I just try to – you're doing a great job of analyzing those. I'm just trying to slow us down and make sure that we're all on the same page with, with what's actually going on. And I think um, getting back to, you know, predictions, I think I'm probably more on the fence here than you are. You seem to be um, – under the opinion that it's definitely going to go uh, Elliott's and the NFL PA's way. I, I think this is still an uphill battle for the PA. I think that, you know, obviously, and, and as the NFL has repeatedly hammered um, their court filings with, there's a lot of precedent out there um, that that leans in their favor. And, and I think the PA has done a fantastic job of uh, putting some space between this case and Deflategate and really, showing the differences uh it's just a matter of whether or not the judge in this case is going to buy it um you know i I think there's some factual issues that the pa has overblown and if and and one of which being kind of these interview notes which i just said were very important but and they are but at the same time if you really dig into the transcript you'll you'll realize that the arbitration kia roberts testified that two the two formal interviews she did of of the accuser uh, she did have notes, and those were turned over um, and it, the other ones she didn't deem an in interview they were kind of like follow up calls or things of that nature, and she didn't turn over notes for those things so it, maybe it's a little bit less severe um than the p a has made it out to be not not that that makes it right or any any more fair, but um you know i think there's there's um, certainly some things out there that could give the judge a hook to rule for the n f l or, or say that they don't, the NFLPA doesn't have a likelihood to succeed on the merits. Um, and, and, you know, I think we always have to kind of take the tenor of a hearing with a grain of salt. Um, you know, I think in the Flakegate, gate, the two big hearings that we saw, right, so we, the oral argument at the appeals level and then Judge Berman, those were both predictors of how the courts were going to rule. Uh, walking people that walked out of that, both in both situations, there knew and correctly were able to predict how the court was going to rule. Uh, Dan, you and I know that that's not always not always the case. Yeah,
1: but, but I, I think you and I were might have been two of the few people who felt that way because a lot of the commentary coming out of Berman's courtroom for days in all the reporting was the two works, Devil's Advocate, that it just seemed too good to be true, and maybe Judge Berman was looming. On the NFL, a little bit harder to try to force a settlement. I mean, we didn't believe that, but that was the conventional wisdom. And, and uh, I, I see I see traces of the Berman approach in how Judge Mazant questioned the NFL. I and mean, then maybe he's a poker player. Maybe he's playing devil's advocate. But I, I can only go based on the question. I'm not going to start second-guessing and thinking it's too good to be true, yep. uh, particularly when there was a, a, a very sustained Line of cynicism and, and uh, you know what I would consider negativity or all you know, just just it wasn't hostility but it just seemed to be one sided.
0: Yeah, I, I agree, and I think that's the likely most likely option. I'm just throwing it out there as a possibility yeah. that you know maybe they have a poker face, and I think there was probably even more of a reason to believe it and to flick it because Judge Berman had this stance where he and I went through the some of the documents the other day and some of the docket language and he was I forgot about this but he was constantly pushing the parties to settle constantly everything he would do he would encourage them to talk about settling the case we don't have that here i don't think there's any possibility for settlement um given the dynamics of the minimum 6 game number and the domestic violence policy and i said this uh in our last podcast that no one heard obviously but I didn't think there was any chance that Harold Henderson was going to reduce the number. I thought he had two options, either uphold it or vacate it completely. And that's why there's just no grounds to me for settlement. Um, And that being said, I mean, I think the judge hasn't pushed that here. And so maybe there's even more reason to read into the tenor of the courtroom on Wednesday. But um, as we've discussed, who knows?
1: Yeah, let's talk about settlement for a second. I mean, I I realize that you know Harold Henderson may have had. uh, I don't think he had a binary, you know, one or the other choice. But the league and the players' association now have an opportunity uh, to resolve it. uh, To Lower the suspension. Pick pick any number that's going to make sense. But I and I agree with you. I don't think the two sides can settle the case. But the reason the reason I believe that is because the NFLPA, the union, I believe it smell. It's like a shark that smells you know, blood in the water. And the NFL seriously screwed up. With this evidentiary reading, and of course we didn't even get into the Keir Roberts, you know Kier Roberts, if I'm pronouncing the name correctly, that saga, which shows some I think of some kind of a whitewashing of the report and, and certainly the decision making. Um, I think the NFL, has, uh, the, the, the the league, I believe, is vulnerable at this point, given what we've heard come out of the, coming out of this courtroom. I think there's no way, no how, the Players Association settles for anything other than total capitulation, because this is an opportunity to um, you know, to score a major win in court, and if it does get upheld by the Fifth Circuit, uh, that's a counterweight to the Second Circuit and Eighth Circuit decisions. Of course, the P.A. could lose on appeal, but my, my perspective on that is they're no worse for where because they already have adverse precedent on the two, two out of two uh, Federal Circuit Courts of Appeal. I think this is an opportunity to kind of, uh, you know, recalibrate or, or, you know, level uh, the judicial playing field, if if the league can score, if the union could score a major victory on a procedural uh, defect in how the league conducts its investigation and how it conducts its arbitration proceeding, I think that that could create a valuable precedent for future challenges. And this is the perfect case to use as a test case, given what we've learned.
0: Yeah, and it, it would potentially, depending on how the ruling went and depending what issues are um argued in the Fifth Circuit, I mean it could potentially uh create some conflicting uh circuit decisions which would potentially make this ripe for a Supreme Court ruling as well, which would be just fascinating. Uh we we lucked out we we have a sports law case on the Supreme Court docket for this year, the sports gambling case out of New Jersey. Which I think we're all looking to in the sports law world, looking forward to, I should say.
1: We hope but, it's this year. Yeah, well, well I, mean, I know that it's going to be this year, but it, it could I mean, go this year's docket, this into,
0: next session. Yeah, it could go into April,
1: but there, there's always room for more. Uh, I mean, this is just stuff we love to talk about, and uh, you know, you and I, with uh, our litigation backgrounds, I think we, we're a little bit more jazzed up when cases go to court. Uh, because we can plop into our, uh, you know, wheelhouse of litigation experience. You know, we've probably seen and done just about everything you could do in a civil litigation environment, you know, injunction you know, uh, with TROs, motions for plural injunction, evidence disputes, discovery disputes, trials. So for me, my antenna go up, and I think I, bring, I, I get super excited when these cases, um, you know, get litigated as opposed to, you know, watching or hoping for some legislative change. I mean, this is what it's all about. Yep. And, uh, you know, ha- having, having a high-profile case like this that commands the attention of a national audience uh,
0: is exciting. Absolutely. There's, there's no yeah, so, more exciting litigation than two parties who despise each other, too. And I think that's the dynamic <laughs> that we're in right now. And I found it, uh, you know, we had some sort of ancillary court filings. They're bickering over... The content of some uh, some briefs that were filed that were allowed by the judge, but anyway, it, it, within that, Jeffrey Kessler, the PA's lawyer, um, as one of the requirements for the filing, they have to do what's called a meet and confer. So they have to, you know, call the other side and, and say that they tried to uh, resolve this dispute before filing the motion. Um, so I, I just in good faith,
1: in good faith, right? They had to have a good faith conference. Do yep. these parties have a good good faith conference?
0: yeah i don't think so i would have loved to been a fly on the wall for that conversation and and the funny thing was that there was this paragraph that was quoted um from nash within kessler's brief and i I just imagine the conversation of being no you have to if you're going to file this you have to put this paragraph in the brief verbatim i'm going to type it out i'm going to send it to you and uh i just got a kick out of, of of thinking how that all went down um but in any event, I think it's it's a good time to talk, and we've we've touched on this a little bit. But really, um, going through some scenarios and next steps for what's going to happen after today, after uh, you know it's scheduled to be a ruling come out by the judge by five. Um, Dan, what happens if the judge grants the TRO but not an injunction?
1: Uh, Well, that's a a significant distinction. A temporary restraining order and a preliminary injunction uh, are similar types of relief. Uh, They would act as a ban or a prohibition against the league uh, implementing its suspension. But a TRO is only uh, good for 14 days after which the court would have to have a more full-blown a hearing on a preliminary injunction, although the court just did that. But the advantage of a TRO is that it is not immediately appealable. So if the judge issues a TRO, he basically controls the case and doesn't have to worry about the Fifth Circuit interfering in the proceedings and would provide the judge with a little bit of leeway to enter a final judgment meeting after the TRO is on it, the judge would be able to set a, uh, a briefing schedule on the ultimate relief in the case, which is a motion to vacate the arbitration award from the PA, and uh, competing against that would be a motion to confirm the arbitration award from the National Football League. So he could put it on a fast docket and uh, have the TRO still uh, remain in effect without any appeal right, and then wrap up this case uh, you know, within the next month to six weeks. and In fact, I'm surprised that he didn't convert uh, this round of motion papers into a full-blown, uh, you know, decision on the match. But the league hasn't had an opportunity to answer the complaint that the league would need to file an answer. So the judge has a choice. He can either enter the TRO and have it not be appealable or enter a preliminary injunction, which means that we're going to be in New Orleans you know, beginning on Monday with a fifth circuit appeal and the possibility of emergency motion practice before the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, so those are the two choices the judge has, and the same holds true whether he grants the relief or denies the relief, because even the denial of a motion for a preliminary injunction is appealable. So, in the event that the judge, by some miracle, doesn't rule for Ezekiel Elliott. Um, and denies the preliminary injunction, I believe that Elliott can take an immediate appeal to the Fifth Circuit and ask for an emergency stay of the suspension. Am I am I missing anything? Do you, do you agree with that possibility? Not whether that happens, but whether that's even on the table as a prospect. Yeah,
0: I I agree with uh, the whole thing right there. And it's interesting that um, the judge granting a TRO actually slows this whole case down a little bit. Um if he, if he goes the PI route, we're going to get a faster route to the Fifth Circuit. Um, I think we're all under the assumption that no matter what happens at this level of court, it's going to be appealed at some point, to, you know, regardless of which party. So uh, it's just a matter now of, of which route the judge would like to take at this stage. Um, and if, like you said if if it's just a TRO we're we're at least hanging around the district court for the next few weeks we may have another uh preliminary injunction hearing um in a couple of weeks and briefing on that issue more briefing on that issue I doubt that they would need more briefing but um it's going to keep it in the district court for longer um which is, if if Elliot wins that's that's you know if we're thinking now about going back to his suspension uh, there's a good chance that the suspension now starts kicking out later and later.
1: Yeah, but, we, you know, uh, I agree. Uh, but what, what's so word about this case when it's prepared to deflate you? We didn't have... In preliminary injunctions or temporary restraining orders at issue in the, the deflate case before Richard Berman. I think Berman just set a briefing schedule for the ultimate relief on the merits, which was a, a vacator of, this, of, of, the, of the arbitration or a confirmation of the arbitration. And the lawsuit was filed in late July, which basically gave the judge a six week window to decide the case before the NFL season would include on the proceedings. But we didn't have that opportunity here because of the delay in the uh, announcement of the, of the suspension. So it by necessity had to go to an emergency, uh, you know, TRO or, or PI motion practice just to be able to enable Elliot to play for the first week of the season, because had it gone the normal, uh, falling out on the parents with setting a briefing schedule on the ultimate relief, it, it would have taken until at least the middle of September and you'd already be missing a few games. Um, so that is one major distinction between this case and the Brady case.
0: Absolutely. Um, and it, it always makes me laugh when people complained about how long the Gate was taking um, because in reality, both judge Berman and uh the appellate court in that case both moved quicker than they do in normal cases they put them on expedited schedules um yeah. it, you know typically in litigation something like that would take probably an extra year if not longer to get through and you know the fact it just kind of gives everyone a glimpse into what um you know federal litigation is is really like um although that was sort of an anomaly cuz that moved relatively fast even though it seemed very slow And it seemed like it took years for uh, Brady to actually serve his suspension. Um, So do we think a notice of appeal gets filed, you know, today after this, Uh, you know, assuming it's an appealable decision?
1: Yeah, just, just just almost as a, um, you know, as a protest or an FU, I think the notion of parties, and we've seen this in the, I know we saw it in the Christie 2 case, the New Jersey sports gambling case, I think we even saw it in uh, Deflategate, um, the league, and that, we're, we're in the era of electronic filing, this decision will come down at 6, you know, 6 p.m. Eastern possibly. On a Friday night, but uh, it wouldn't really take too much effort to throw up a two pager uh, on on pace or on the docket later this evening with the losing side. If there is a losing side and there is an appealable order, I I would expect to see um, a notice of appeal on the docket later this evening or certainly by the weekend or Monday. Uh, Certainly no later than that. Ordinarily under uh, court rules, a losing side has 30 days to file a notice of appeal.
0: Hey, Conduct Detrimental fans, we have some big news to report. We have our first actual sponsor for the podcast. And it's on a topic that's near and dear to our hearts, fantasy football. So if you love fantasy football, then you need to try our new favorite app, Draft. It's weekly fantasy football, but not like the other guys. On Draft, you draft real live snake drafts with other people, just like in your season long league. Here's how it works. It's a draft that lasts for just one week and there's no management. Just set it and forget it. Once you're done drafting, that's it. No trades, no waiver wire. Draft even takes care of the last minute injuries for you. Drafts start every couple minutes so you can join one right now. And the best part, you can play for cold hard cash. Drafts start at just one dollar so there's a draft for everyone. No salary caps, play in a real live snake draft, just like you play with your friends in a season long league. Come join us on draft today. Download the app at any time, just search Draft in your app store, and join a game in minutes. Or play right from your computer at PlayDraft.com, whichever way you want. For a limited time only, all new players get a free entry into Draft when you make your first deposit, but you have to use our promo code, which is SPORTSLAW. That's right, kind of detrimental fans. Play in a real money game for free by just using the promo code SPORTSLAW on your first deposit of the Draft. Just search Draft in the App Store or go to PlayDraft.com and come play with our free promo code, SPORTSLAW, and we're back at it. And one other thing, you know, that the NFL did, complete, well, I shouldn't say completely unrelated, but somewhat unrelated to this case, they I guess they rectified one of their big domestic violence mess-ups in the past. And Dan, they came out just today or maybe last night, and announced that they're suspending former Giants kicker Josh Brown, a subject that we've talked about many times on this podcast, to six games, the the minimum under the domestic violence policy. He previously had been suspended for one game, and then it was an indefinite suspension. What do you make of the timing here?
1: Well, no, no it's certainly no coincidence at all uh, that the league would announce such a suspension within a few hours of... Uh, that ruling in uh, Ezekiel Elliott's case certainly one of the arguments that uh, the NFLPA uh, has made will make uh, is the um, arbitrary and capricious nature of the discipline as compared with other cases, and, and the you know some of the poster child uh, for all prior cases that you, you know are going to be pointed to is the Josh Brown suspension. Josh Brown violated the domestic violence policy and got only a one-game suspension. Uh, so, uh, so one possible point of entry, or one possible winning argument for the players' association would be to would be to sort of you know point out that disparity and that it would be arbitrary and capricious to you know suspend Iliad, Ezekiel Elliott six times as much as Josh Brown. So I think you know maybe the cynic cynic in me. Uh, but I mean the guy hasn't been in the league for more than for almost a full year. Uh, the last time he kicked, I think Pete Gogolak was still in the league. I mean he's he's gone and forgotten. Why is it taking the why has it taken the league a full calendar year to rectify that? And no less on the day of the Ezekiel Elliott decision. I mean it could have waited until Monday. I doubt that there's any innocent explanation for this because the optics should have been obvious even to the yes, even to the National Football League.
0: Yeah, the length of timing in both investigations has been uh, somewhat questionable. I think we saw a little bit behind the curtain in the in the Elliott case that what took so long and they had all these experts in, which I think elongated the timeline. Um, I I think what's interesting about Josh Brown, other than just the timing of the decision is, is what the PA is going to do about it. Uh, Are are they going to have, is there going to be another appeal? Is there going to be another federal lawsuit? I mean, these are possibilities at this point. I think it's going to come down to um, in part what happens in the Elliott case. And and they're going to start being on parallel timelines here. Uh, I'm assuming that they're at least going to appeal on the NFL level um, based on uh, sort of a double penalty, if not other um, other errors on the NFL's part. You know, if you didn't get it right the first time, how can you just punish us again based on a public opinion? Uh, Dan, we've seen that argument before in the Ray Rice case, obviously operating under a different policy um, at the time, but uh, still a very curious um, timing for that decision. And also, uh, you know, I, I just can't imagine that they I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm pessimistic and think that the NFL always looks at things through a PR microscope, but uh, it's the I mean, there's a lot of not great cases floating around the news lines right now. Um, but we'll see. I mean, opening weekend, I'm sure the games are going to uh, you know override that, but we'll see.
1: Yeah, I mean, my my perspective on it is I don't think Judge Mazamp is going to fall for it. But first of all, the comparison and the different penalties, I don't think it's such a big argument anymore under the new domestic violence policy if it's six games. Um, uh, You you know, this case, the, the Elliott case is going to turn on the procedural defects. Rather than the um, you know extent of the punishment, I believe, and uh, I'll, I'll for once try not to advance the litigation uh, cause. I don't think I don't think Josh Brown is going to challenge this. He wants to play in the league. What is he going to get from fighting it? He's going to get five weeks. Uh, money. He's he's unemployed right now. He's not earning. I don't I don't know what deal he made with the Giants to. You know what kind of severance arrangement, but I think his contract isn't guaranteed. He's out of the league, and if he fights the NFL, um, he'll remain out of the league for the foreseeable future. You don't have to fight the NFL in court to be blackballed, as uh, you know Colin Kaepernick knows all too well. Uh, So I think uh, I think Brown accepts this punishment, and perhaps uh, once he finishes serving it, which he's probably already served it, uh, it might provide a more palatable uh, environment for Brown to re-enter the league because no longer will he have gotten away with it. He will have served the full suspension. And if Ezekiel Elliott uh, can come back and play in the National Football League uh, after presumably physically you know, assaulting somebody, and we don't know if that's true, we certainly don't know if that's true, but if he can come back and, and, and participate in the league following this alleged conduct... then why can't can't Josh Brown? I think the outcry over Brown, just like the outcry over Ray Rice, came not from the offense itself, but from the NFL's under-punishment of the offense, which ended up getting foisted on the player as a a fallout. Uh, So I think Brown accepts it, and... Maybe he'll play in the league again. He's too good of a kicker, but unfortunately, you know, for him, kickers are probably the most fungible, uh, you know, position in the league. But tell that yeah. to the team that loses a playoff game because of, uh, you know, missed extra points. So he'll be back in the league at some point. And I, this uh, longer suspension will create a, the right PR environment for it.
0: I disagree. I think he's toxic. I think he's done. Um, I think kickers are a dime a dozen. I don't think there's any argument that Elliott's going to be back in the league. Um, you know he's obviously one of the best best football players in the NFL um i think every team you know there's there's always the the risk versus talent balance that teams yeah. have to make and for a kicker uh you know if if Josh Brown makes one more field goal a year than Robbie Gold um is he worth taking on all of that pr negativity and uh you know potentially alienating some of your fans I think the answer for all the teams is no. Personally, um, you know, for Elliot, you might be right. You you might be right. We're yeah.
1: talking about a kicker. We're not talking about a you know quarterback.
0: Right. I I can't remember I Josh Brown's exact age, but I know he's been around for a while. So I think he was sort of the tail end of his career anyway. Um, but you know, for Elliot, there's, there's 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 no doubt he'll be back. For kickers, there's no
1: tail end of a career. For, that's actually a kicker. that's true. And, you know, Morton Anderson. I think he's is he still kicking? I mean, their life cycle. Uh, for careers, like a quarter
0: of a century, if they're any good. It's a good point. Good point. Noted. Yeah. And apparently for quarterbacks now, although Tom Brady didn't didn't um, look yeah. so great last night, but I think that was uh, someone else. But anyway, I, I think there's one point, one more point that we wanted to roll back on that we probably glazed over too quickly before, uh, and that's related to today's hearing. We, we talked a lot about the likelihood of success and the merits, but the other big issue here is irreparable harm. And, um, you know, Dan, I think we were talking earlier about do people really understand what irreparable harm means? And and usually from a legal sense, this is generalizing it, but um, it's something that can't be uh, made up for by money. So you can't just pay for them. And I think, you know, uh, you look at it from the outside and you say, hey, Ezekiel Elliott, um, even if he misses these games and they rule for him later, uh, he can get the money back. But that's not really what it is, is it, Dan?
1: No, no, no. In fact, uh, in 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 some jurisdictions, there's two two separate requirements that are related to harm. That uh, you would have to show that the harm would be irreparable, and then you would have to also show the inadequacy of money damages. Meaning that if you're seeking a preliminary injunction, but you could be compensated, uh, you could be made whole through the payment of money, then you don't get the injunction. Here in the Fifth Circuit, and under the federal standards, uh, irreparable harm is not equated with you can't be compensated by money It's it's a different it's, it's, it's kind of difficult to describe uh, but the, the defense that uh, let's say if Elliot were placed by the list and got every paycheck that he would have, that he otherwise would have missed for six weeks well that would not prevent him from being arrestedly on because it's loss of playing time the intangible associated with an athlete's short playing career, the opportunity to keep pace with your, uh, with your colleagues, to be able to practice, to be able to earn honors, to, to help your team win, uh, none of that can be compensated by a paycheck. So uh, I think if you eliminate the possibility that he could be made whole through money as, as a factor, because it is not a factor uh, on the irreparable harm uh, prong, at least not in this case, I think uh, if you eliminate that element from it, uh, it's a no-brainer that a professional athlete who misses significant playing time, no matter what his age, uh, will suffer irreparable harm because the lifespan of an athlete is going to be short, whether he's in his twenties or thirties. It's not like being an accountant or an engineer or a lawyer, although those those professions don't necessarily have a lot lot of job security. But the federal the, the federal court decisions almost uniformly recognize an athlete's loss of significant playing time as tantamount, not just tantamount, but actually as irreparable harm. So I think it's uh, it, it's one that you can immediately and automatically check the box for, for Zekiel Elliott here.
0: Yeah, and I think what the fa- one of the fascinating, interesting facts about this case was that we saw the head lawyer for the Dallas Cowboys, the general counsel, file an affidavit on Elliott's behalf, huh. uh, essentially saying that he losing him would be irreparable harm to to the team, um in, in their pursuit for, you know, winning a Super Bowl, making the playoffs. Um and and those are all I mean, it was it was fascinating to me to see the team kinda go out um on a limb for a player who has been accused of things that are um not pretty. And I know that, you know, throughout the whole process we've talked about this before. Jerry Jones is obviously um very much behind his player. Uh but for the lawyer to do this, I, I I just I'm curious as to how that conversation went with with between the owner and and the GC of of the Cowboys, but we'll never know those things. Uh, all right, Dan. Well, we hit our uh, we're about ten minutes longer than we were supposed to go, but that's okay. I'm glad we were able to put this together, and I'm sure we'll have a lot to talk about in this case moving forward. It's far from over, in my opinion. Uh, no matter what well, I happens think, I, today. I, I think
1: it's all- I think this case becomes our weekly episode for the rest of the year. You know, it'll be be like, like like the roots of sports law. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we, we could just do a version on it every single week, um, especially if the judge issues in order that's appealable. Because if it's appealable, then that changes. Uh, it just changes the venue and begins a whole new set of questions and new. If it's just a TRO, then we're going to have kind of a holding pattern for at least a couple of weeks. So yep. I look forward to 2017 being the year of Ezekiel Elliott and the year of Daniel Worley and Daniel Wallace. So <laughs> um, it's a great way to start the season.
0: Absolutely. Well, have a great time in London, Dan. We'll uh, we'll be back soon. Thanks, everyone, for checking in. Subscribe on iTunes. Leave us a review. And we'll talk to you next time.